0: Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the Earth recorded its hottest day ever, July 3rd, with an average global temperature of 17.01 Celsius. The record was broken the next day with 17.18. Common Dreams' Jake Johnson collected international response, including a British scientist calling it a death sentence for people and ecosystems. The same day, Johnson reported IMF estimates that world governments dished out nearly $6 trillion in fossil fuel subsidies in 2020, and those giveaways are expected to grow. At Truthout, Victoria Law wrote about extreme heat's impact on the incarcerated, including people in their 30s dropping dead in prisons with inadequate cooling systems. One source described his cell, no air gets in and no air escapes. Public Citizen points to House Appropriations Republicans larding spending bills with poison pill riders that fuel the crisis and block alternatives. And a database from the new climate group F-reveals how many state lobbyists hired by environmental groups also lobby for fossil fuel companies, entrenching those lobbyists in state capitals with a veneer of respectability even as public opinion of fossil fuels plummets. Orange skies burning over many parts of the U.S. may not be the rocket's red glare, but they're signs of war nonetheless. The battle is less well understood as a fight between humans and climate change as one between those who want to forcefully mitigate disastrous impacts and those who want them to continue for the simple reason that it's making them rich. There is no way to fight climate disruption without fighting climate disruptors. This week on the show. Emily Sanders watched appalled as CNN's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Interviewed Chevron's Mike Wirth recently, leading her to write How Not to Interview an Oil CEO for Exxon News. She's editorial lead at the Center for Climate Integrity. We'll ask her about that. And when media illustrate pushback against the fossil fuel industry, it generally looks like activists with signs. But there are myriad points of resistance at different levels of community, offering multiple ways forward but all of them in the same direction. In 2021, HuffPost reporter Alexander Kaufman discussed attempts of local representatives to have a say in building codes and industry's reaction. Democracy Collaborative's Johanna Bozua joined us during 2019's California wildfires and power outages to explain the potential role of public utilities in the climate crisis. That's coming up. You're listening to Counterspin brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. A chummy interview of Chevron CEO Mike Wirth by CNBC's Andrew Ross Sorkin saw the goal of mitigating the devastating harms of climate disruption pitted against the evidently equally important goal of making Wirth more money— conceding that many people around the world are desperate for an end to the fossil fuels driving the catastrophe including supposedly worth himself Sorkin added quote, "at the same time i think it would be impossible for you not to want your business to grow" Close quote. so there's your frame the life and health of people and the planet on the one hand endless corporate profiteering on the other only question is how do we balance them Chevron has caused the most energy-related greenhouse gas emissions in the last several decades. They took in over $35 billion just last year. But when Sorkin gets its head honcho in a chair, he makes jokes about golf and asks the polluter what he makes of climate activists. You won't be surprised to hear that our next guest offered that conversation as exemplar in a recent piece titled how not to interview an oil CEO. Emily Sanders is editorial lead at the Center for Climate Integrity and founder of Exxon News, where that piece appears. She joins us now by phone from Queens. Welcome to Counterspin, Emily Sanders.
1: Hi, Janine. Thank you so much for having me. Well, while
0: this friendly chat at something called the Aspen Ideas Festival was especially infuriating, it wasn't unique. Some of the problems with it show up in other media, which is, I guess, what prompted you to write this piece.
1: Yeah, I mean, mainstream media has had a very hard time connecting climate change to oil companies and their decades of pollution and deception about the harms caused by fossil fuels. And when you see coverage of deadly heat waves and wildfire smoke, for instance, there's often no mention of things like how the major oil companies are still spending millions every year lobbying to delay the transition to renewable energy, or how Chevron, the world's most polluting investor oil company, is currently pouring even more money into increased fossil fuel extraction and production after making record profits last year. So... It's also not a coincidence that mainstream media is so far behind on this. The fossil fuel industry has a long history of investing in the media in order to manipulate the conversation about our reliance on oil and gas, what needs to be done about it, and what the obstacles really are to addressing climate change. And that goes back to at least the 80s and 90s when oil companies began placing ads and or ads disguised as news editorials in major outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post that downplayed the reality of climate change. And even today, as we learned from last year's congressional investigations and hearings into the industry's disinformation, companies like Exxon, Chevron, BP, and Shell are still running advertisements that look like articles in the country's biggest news outlets promoting things like Algae and so-called natural gas as climate solutions. So they've really used the veil of journalistic credibility to help disguise their misleading and deceptive advertising for quite a while. And we're seeing that not just with advertising, but with some reporters themselves still failing to name the source of climate inaction and still unable or unwilling to recognize and call out disinformation sometimes even parroting fossil fuel industry framing about how we can't move off oil too quickly or how big oil is working on ways to solve climate change despite that they're causing it without actually challenging those misconceptions it's not everyone and some have gotten better but it's certainly still a major problem and i think we saw that last week with this CNBC interview and What was particularly disorienting about that interview, I think, was just how divorced from reality it felt at this current increasingly dire moment of climate emergency. You know, we have all the evidence now of Chevron's duplicity. And while this interview was happening, millions of the rest of us in the United States were trapped inside because of extreme heat or toxic wildfire smoke. That somehow was just not mentioned at all in the interview. There was no mention of the dozens of communities that are suing Chevron and other oil companies to hold them accountable, including one lawsuit filed just a week before the interview took place by Multnomah County in Oregon for a heat dome that killed 69 people a couple of years ago. And last year's house oversight investigation into big oil's ongoing disinformation campaign and their efforts to delay climate action weren't mentioned. So there was so much missing context and so many questions that didn't get asked, so much misinformation that went just completely uncorrected. And unfortunately, that's nothing new, but it's really frustrating and infuriating when you have an actual CEO of one of the world's most polluting and powerful companies sitting in the room, getting treated as if he were a legitimate thought partner who's just trying to Balances business priorities with concerns about the climate, it felt like a real wasted opportunity to hold him and other oil executives to account.
0: And as you've outlined, we can understand reasons why that doesn't happen. You point to advertising and that long history of advertorials, and then you go even further back and there are interlocking directorates of fossil fuel and corporate media industries. You know, they're on one another's boards, so even though we might call for hard-hitting, tough, interrogative reporting, we do understand the pressures that make that um, unlikely to happen and the pressures that make it so much more comfortable to have the kind of um, jokey, you know, aren't we all in this together conversation that we saw between Sorkin and Worth. I want to follow up on one point, which is that the least, well, (laughs) the least and most our standards have have dropped so far, but you would hope that when the person you're talking to straight up lies, you know, we're not talking about industry PR deception, but Worth himself saying things that were false in this conversation, and that Sorkin didn't even follow up on.
1: Yeah, I mean, we heard Worth tell some flat out whoppers, like he said, the clean energy system is only about 1% built, but actually last year renewable energy made up 21.5% of total electricity generation in the U.S., and that number could be a lot higher if the oil companies got out of the way. But SIR can just let that one slide. There were so many other pieces of disinformation and really actually great examples of the many different ways that oil companies lie and mislead in this interview. And I mean, all of those have been exposed in lawsuits, in congressional investigations, journalistic investigations, and academic research. So you would, you would hope that Sorkin would have been prepared to, to challenge them. And that's, you know, what we really need to see for more journalists going forward.
0: So you touched on this, but it seems like part of the obfuscation in media is suggesting that various weather events have such multiple complex causes that it's just impossible to link them directly to fossil fuels. And you talked about wildfires, which, of course, there's much on the mind right now. And I know that fossil fuel lobbyists are working furiously to make sure that people do not associate those orange skies with fossil fuel emissions. And I can already see the memes like wildfires cause more pollution than fossil fuels, but you aren't fighting trees, you know, like you can already see the desire to have people disaggregate wildfires and particulates from fossil fuel emissions. So what should we be keeping in mind there? Well,
1: there's actually a growing field of what's Called attribution science, or science that's able to link specific companies' emissions to worsening patterns of extreme weather and even individual weather events. And actually, a recent study published by researchers at the Union of Concerned Scientists found that more than a third of recent wildfires in the western U.S. and Canada can be attributed to 88 specific fossil fuel and cement manufacturing companies. So, We're even seeing more and more of the climate lawsuits against big oil citing this type of research as evidence of the damage these companies knowingly caused. Like this last lawsuit in Multnomah County cited scientific studies that said the heat dome would have been virtually impossible without climate change. So these companies can say it's complicated, just like cigarettes companies said you couldn't prove smoking caused cancer and that there were so many other potential factors involved. But I think the science overwhelmingly tells us a different story.
0: You head up the cleverly named Exxon News. I wonder if you could tell us finally what the goals of that project are. What would, as they say, put you out of business?
1: I think, you know, the goals of that project are to look at the ongoing disinformation that's coming out of the fossil fuel industry, especially so that other journalists and members of the media and anybody else who has the opportunity to challenge an oil executive on a global stage or a national stage can do so armed with the information they need to expose the oil industry for their continuing deception and contributions to the climate crisis.
0: We've been speaking with Emily Sanders, editorial lead at the Center for Climate Integrity and founder of Exxon News, online at Exxon News, with a K, dot org. Thank you so much, Emily Sanders, for joining us this week on
1: Counterspin. Thanks so much for having me.
0: We think of pipelines and coal mines as arenas of the fight over climate policy, but another battlefield rarely in the spotlight is buildings. Buildings account for 40% of all energy consumed in the U.S. and about the same proportion of greenhouse gases produced. There's an obvious social gain in adapting buildings to climate realities, making them not just energy efficient, but future-proofed against predictable weather events. Many cities were working on building codes to reflect that need until industry groups said, not so fast. Counterspin heard about this largely under the radar story in March 2021 from Alexander Kaufman, senior reporter at Huff Post and co founder of the nonprofit environmental news collaborative Floodlight. After explaining that the International Code Council, or ICC, is a not especially international, consortium of industry and government groups that sets baseline model codes for different buildings, Kaufman moved on to what was going on in cities like Minneapolis.
2: Every three years, there is a vote on what is known as the Model Energy Code, the International Energy Conservation Code. And this is a broad set of requirements and mandates around how thick insulation needs to be in certain zones and what kind of windows are best to preserve energy within the building. And every year, there was a relatively low turnout of government voters who would have the final say on what made it into that model code. It was a pretty wonky topic. Few governments were fully aware of their ability to participate. And what happened is that in 2018, two things kind of converged. Both There was this growing frustration with the fact that the last Two rounds of codes had made really meager improvements on energy efficiency overall, about 1% each time. And there was the UN's IPCC report, which really laid bare just how little time was left to dramatically slash planet heating emissions and keep climate change within a relatively safe range. And as a result, you had groups like the US Conference of Mayors and other campaign organizations that tried to push a lot of sustainability policies through cities, organize their members, you know, which include virtually every city over thirty thousand residents in the US, to get together and, and register eligible city officials to vote in the process that took place in late 2019 which would set the codes that are set to come into effect for 2021 and it was a huge success mm-hmm. uh you know they they had record voter turnout. They had hundreds of new government officials voting in the process and overwhelmingly voting for more aggressive measures to increase energy efficiency. Some of the improvements going up from that 1% improvement the last time around went as high as 14% for some residential buildings. Likewise, they approved new measures that would essentially bring this entire national building code in line with what many cities across the country are already doing to prepare for a low carbon future you know requiring the circuitry for electric appliances or electric vehicle chargers be included automatically in buildings because it's much more expensive to add those things after the fact what ended up happening once the votes were tallied and it became clear that these city officials had successfully improved on the climate readiness of the code, industry groups push back. Hmm. And those industry groups include the National Association of Home Builders, one of the largest trade groups in the country representing developers and construction companies, and the American Gas Association, uh, which represents gas utilities, which has a lot at stake in the potential transition away from gas heating and, and cooking. They rallied and first question the eligibility of the voters to cast ballots in this election at all. And when it became clear that the voters who did vote were totally eligible under the ICC's rules, they decided instead that they wanted to stem this from ever happening again and proposed that instead this code, the energy code, is put through a separate process known as a standards process, whereby there is no government vote at the end. It's done entirely through these kind of bureaucratic channels where there's no risk that government voters are going to buck with what the industry is comfortable with. And this is ultimately what they succeeded in making happen.
0: That was reporter Alexander Kaufman recounting an at once inspiring and very frustrating story of how far fossil fuel companies will go to thwart the public will in the effort to harm public health. Of course, at the root, fights over responding to the climate emergency are fights over power and accountability, and power. Resistance includes new visions, new models of how we run energy systems. In the fall of 2019, the word unlivable was being used to describe California in the midst of wildfires and power outages. Our guest and others saw at the core not just climate crisis, but a private utility system that's not incentivized to address it. Johanna Bozua, co-manager of the Climate and Energy Program at the Democracy Collaborative, filled us in on some relevant history of Pacific Gas and Electric.
3: There's a lot of history that's here in terms of PG&E not investing in its grid for so many years and really putting shareholder profits uh, ahead of the infrastructure that we now have, which has created this concept of the new normal. But it also doesn't have to be. I mean, having these power shutoffs come on again and again, Governor Newsom has even said, these are incredibly not surgical. They are doing blanket shutoffs because They're afraid of liability, but they're also not providing the infrastructure that communities need to actually make it through these. So their phone lines are off. You can't get onto their website. And there's only a generator station for every county. And so that's just showing that this is not just them taking precautions. This is them severely mismanaging a situation in which people are losing their power and losing access to maybe life-sustaining medical apparatuses as well.
0: Well, and you point to history. They aren't just any utility that is being forced to deal with climate disruption. There's more that we should know about the role they've played vis-a-vis climate change, isn't there?
3: Oh, yes, definitely. And the Energy and Policy Institute had a really important expose. Uh, We hear a lot about Exxon new and Shell new on the news, uh, but utilities new too. they were part and parcel to the climate disinformation campaigns that have happened in the past and have so disinformation. And PG&E was a part of that as well. So pg and e is not a good actor in this situation. They are the ones that were able to make money off of fossil fuels for so many years and stopping action on climate change for years as well. And now they are paying the price with their own infrastructure that they failed to invest in so that it was ready for the new climate that they had in part given
4: us.
0: Well, alternatives are not just possible. They are, as you write, waiting. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the idea of public utilities.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I advocate that PG&E should be transitioned into public ownership because it can eliminate some of those warped incentives that are associated with monopoly investor-owned utilities that operate our energy system. And we can move towards a situation in which a public good is provided by a public service. So by moving to a public institution, we are going to have hopefully a more accountable utility whose shareholders and stockholders are us. It is the people who are living in California and not the shareholders who are hundreds of miles away. You talk a lot about the media. It's been really interesting for me to look at some of the coverage that's been happening around the investors that are circling PG&E right now. They're saying, oh, we'll take it over. These venture capitalists like Paul Singer, who has been in bed with the Koch brothers for years, investing in anti-climate sentiment. And we see the same thing with Berkshire Hathaway, which is another major utility company that has been trying to stop distributed solar across the United States, just the type of resiliency we need for California. But there are other options that are on the table right now, and they're in action. San Francisco just put in a bid to municipalize their area So that they could take back the grid so that they could be in charge of their own destiny. And similarly, San Jose, one of the biggest cities that PG&E provides service to is saying, actually, you know what we should do? We should create a cooperative utility so that it is beholden to the people of California. And we're taking over PG&E at the statewide level.
0: Well, as we discussed when we talked about public banks on this show with Trinity Tran a few weeks ago, The word public isn't like, you know, pixie dust. It doesn't automatically make things work in a better way, but public utilities would have certain you know, criteria about being democratized, about being decentralized, about being equitable. It's, it's not just a goal, in other words, but a way to get there and, and who is involved in the process.
3: Absolutely. It's not a silver bullet, but it does provide us this opportunity to have more recourse. But there is a history of public ownership in the energy sector. But we have the ability to design into that institution things like decentralization, things like equity, things like a democratized system and build upon what we've seen work in the past and also where we've seen public utilities historically fail. This is a huge opportunity for California to create an energy system that's rooted in climate justice, that's rooted in uh, the realities of the changing climate and how they're going to ensure that they actually are creating a resilient California.
0: That was Johanna Bozoa. We'll end with that idea of not only fighting climate disruptors, but visioning past them as well. We can call on news media to support that effort, but we can't wait for them. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin.